Greetings, users and programs, and welcome to the first episode of Cactus Flax, my arcade podcast. On the first episode of Cactus Flax, I will give you the five W's about this show. We'll start off with who, and that's who am I, and I am Rob Flack O'Hara. I was born in 1973, which means I was just barely tall enough to see the screens and reach the joysticks when arcade games began arriving in Oklahoma in the late 1970s. I lived through the original heyday of 1980s arcades. I witnessed the death of arcades, and I have been a part of the recent resurgence of arcade games as well. I spent my share of quarters not only in local arcades as a kid, like Cactus Jack's, uh, which this podcast is named in tribute of, Le Mans Grand Prix, Aladdin's Castle, the Goldmine Starcade, and several others. But as an adult, I've visited several of the retro arcades around uh, the country, really, that exist today. And that includes Fun Spot, of course, up in New Hampshire, a 1984 arcade in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, I've been to Lost Ark in North Carolina. Um, let's see, Game Galaxy in Nashville, Tennessee, and Galloping Ghost up in Chicago, and of course my friends over in the Arcadia Retrocade in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I recently went to the 1-Up and 2-Up, both out in Denver, and of course my favorite local arcade, Cactus Jacks, which as I said is the arcade that I went to as a child and is still open today. I loved arcade games so much that back in 1994 I decided to buy one. And I enjoyed owning it so much that I bought a second one. And over the next several years, I bought close to 100 arcade games. Uh, Now, I didn't own all 100 at one time. I bought some, and then I sold some, and I traded some for other games. But I've definitely owned my share of machines, uh, all of which I stored in a giant building out behind my house that my wife helped me convert into an 80s-style arcade. So that's the who. Now on to the what. I have created a list of all the machines I've owned, and I've whittled it down to 50 episodes. Now, there were some machines I owned duplicates of, like Shinobi. I've owned three different Shinobi machines. Uh, And some games I combined into one episode, like, for example, uh, all the Neo Geo cartridges I will probably cover uh, in one single episode. So that's how I got the number down to 50 episodes. Uh, So on each episode of Cactus Flax, I will be discussing, for the most part, one machine that I owned. Uh, I'll also be going in chronological order, and that's in the order that I obtain the machine. So they won't be uh, sorted by, let's say, alphabetical order or the the list, uh, uh, let's say, by the year that they came out. Uh, For each show, I'm going to talk about the game. And I will also talk about the specific machine I own. So I'll talk about where I bought it, uh, how much I paid for it, any repairs or interesting stories that I have about it, stuff like that. Where? Well, the where is podcast.robohara.com. Now, for those of you that listen to You Don't Know Flack, you will recognize that as the same URL. I've added a second category, and I have separate RSS feeds so you can subscribe to just You Don't Know Flack or just this show, or you can subscribe. Uh, actually, if you go to robohara.com forward slash podcasts, you'll find a RSS feed that will subscribe to all the shows. So however you want to consume the show, that's okay with me. I have submitted this show to iTunes, but it hasn't been approved yet. I plan on releasing several episodes today. 
and hopefully I can get iTunes to uh, uh, update quickly and see that there's a show here and get us added. So as soon as that happens, I will share that link and you'll be able to find all the information about the feeds and the links and all that information over at podcast.robohara, that's R-O-B-O-H-A-R-A.com. Uh, as for when, I typically release new episodes on Mondays. Uh, this is a new show that's being added into the feed. Uh, possibly you might see an episode every week. Possibly you might see it every other week. But my goal is to get through all 50 episodes in 2016. And that is, we don't have 50 Mondays left in 2016. So I may be doubling up. We'll see how it goes. But uh, this is a project that I want uh, to get through pretty quickly. So that is the goal. As for the why, well, I like arcade games, and I want to capture these memories the best way I can. And I feel like in each one of these episodes, I want to say everything I have to say, not only about these games, but about the cabinets that I owned. Uh, And so each one will be a little capsule. It'll have everything I want to say about that game, and then I can move on to the next one. And some episodes, of course, will be longer than others, or some games I liked more than others, and some I have more stories about than others. But I hope that uh, each one is informative, and I hope each episode is entertaining. Now, I don't want to conclude this first episode without anything entertaining, so I pulled out uh, the first, it's a brief section, a couple of pages worth of text, out of my book that I released in, or uh, gosh, when was this? 2008. Uh, It was called Invading Spaces. You can still buy it if you just want the PDF. It's real cheap uh, over at robohara.com forward slash invading spaces. Uh, or you could just go to robohara.com. I'm sure there's a link there for uh, for the book. But uh, in the beginning of the book, I have a section about the arcades that I visited growing up. So I thought I would throw that in the podcast here, and uh, that will conclude this episode. And then starting with the next episode, we will begin talking about the games. So here's an excerpt from Invading Spaces. Like millions of other kids born in the 1970s and 80s, I spent a significant portion of my youth and allowance in local arcades. Arcades were so popular during that time that my hometown of Yukon, Oklahoma, population 20,000, had no less than four arcades where my friends and I used to hang out. The first arcades to spring up in town were what I call co-located, arcades residing inside other businesses. For a couple of years, the two largest arcades in Yukon could be found inside the skating rink and the bowling alley. Jeff, my primary arcade-playing partner in crime, lived within walking distance of the bowling alley. The two of us spent many summer days hanging out there, our pockets filled with quarters either donated by or pilfered from Jeff's mom. The bowling alley's arcade always had an impressive assortment of games. It was the first place I ever played Karate Champ, Gyrus, Commando, and Shinobi. For a while, they even had the cockpit version of Mach 3, the Laserdisc-based flying game. A few miles further down Main Street was Yukon on Wheels, the Yukon skating rink. Like the Bowling Alley, Yukon on Wheels also owned an impressive collection of arcade classics. It was there I first saw Yar Kung Fu and began mastering Galaga. It's also the first place I ever played Crossbow, which, I might add, is infinitely more difficult to play while wearing roller skates. The more you lean forward to shoot, the further back your feet roll. The first time Jeff and I went to the skating rink together, he didn't even bother to get skates. With a roll of quarters in his pocket, Jeff dominated the foosball table and Galaga machine the entire night. Once people realized kids were visiting these locations just for the arcade games, dedicated arcades began springing up around Yukon. One opened up right down the street from the middle school I was attending. 
Not only was this arcade brand new, but so were all of its games. It's the first place I ever saw the Atari Classics Paperboy and 720. This arcade was too far for me and Jeff to walk to, but occasionally we rode our bikes there. When Jeff and I were in 10th grade, one of Jeff's parents' friends opened Fun Spot, another local arcade. Note that this Fun Spot was not related to any other Fun Spot arcade across the nation. Fun Spot may be the single most used arcade name of all time. Located a block or two behind the bowling alley, Fun Spot was by far the nicest arcade in town. More than just games, this arcade had pool tables, couches, and a well-stocked snack bar, making it the perfect after-school hangout. Before the arcade opened, Jeff and I were, quote, hired as consultants by the owners, which meant we got to play all the games for free in exchange for our feedback and opinions. We played every game in the place, letting the owners know what we liked, what we didn't, and which buttons, joysticks, and coin doors had issues. I distinctly recall beating Double Dragon for the first time at this arcade, a fact I still occasionally point out when I drive by the now vacated building. It's all about that elbow technique, baby. We didn't spend a lot of time hanging out at the fun spot, not because it wasn't nice, but because shortly after it opened, Jeff and I got our driver's licenses. Yukon borders Oklahoma City, and a set of wheels meant access to bigger and better arcades. While there were many to choose from, our two favorites quickly became Bally Le Mans and the infamous Cactus Jacks. Le Mans, located inside Crossroads Mall, was one of the biggest and nicest arcades in the city. Whenever a new game was released, Le Mans was the first to get it. I saw Gauntlet there for the first time. A mutual friend of Jeff and mine had his birthday party at Le Mans, and the three of us spent hours dominating that gauntlet machine. Le Mans was also the first place I ever saw Dragon's Lair, housed in one of those big dual-monitor cabinets that allowed crowds to gather around and watch. I remember being amazed at the graphics and appalled that the game cost 50 cents to play. Cactus Jacks was much closer to my house and the opposite of Le Mans in every way imaginable. While Le Mans had new casino-like red carpet, floor lighting, bright lights, and a video jukebox playing the latest dance tunes, Cactus Jacks was dark and dingy. This arcade had dark brown concrete floors with ceiling rafters and metal pipes covered in some sort of spray-on insulation that the older kids told us was asbestos. We believed them. The arcade's only source of light was the glow from the arcade monitors. Even the windows had been blacked out. The jukebox was old and cranky, filled with White Snake, Led Zeppelin, and Motley Crue records. It's the only arcade I recall having a separate smoking section in the rear, and I'm pretty sure the cigarette machine took tokens. At least once a week, Cactus Jacks held pool tournaments that brought in an older and rougher crowd. There were fights in the parking lot every weekend. It was like a tough country and western bar, but for teenagers. Younger hoodlums begged older hoodlums nightly to walk across the street and buy them six packs of beer, which most of them would gladly do for either a buck or for one of the beers. Before long, we, and I mean the hoodlums, discovered that the convenience store next door was owned by an old Vietnamese man with no concept of checking IDs. The Cactus Jack's parking lot was perpetually filled with beer cans, partying teenagers, and fender benders. The back door of the arcade, which was always propped open, led to a giant unlit field out back. I never went back there. I was too afraid. There were other arcades around town, of course, dozens, in fact, but those were the ones I frequented most. All the local malls like Penn Square Mall, Quail Springs Mall, and Heritage Park Mall had sizable arcades in them. And then there were the entertainment centers like Malibu Grand Prix and Showbiz Pizza. And games weren't just available in arcades. Laundromats, grocery stores, and convenience stores had them too. In fact, my neighborhood convenience store had Map Mania, Joust, and Track and Field machines for many years. Snyder's, our local grocery store, had Moon Patrol and Zookeeper machines right next to the magazine rack. It seems like no matter where you turn, there was an arcade machine standing there ready to accept your quarter. 
During these same years, arcades and arcade games happily coexisted with video game consoles and home computers. However, as anyone who has played those older arcade ports can tell you, playing arcade games at home was never the same as playing them in an arcade. The most obvious difference was that the arcade versions had much better sound and graphics than their home counterparts. Not even my grandmother could have confused the boxy, flickering version of Pac-Man for the Atari 2600 with the arcade version. Likewise, the Atari version of Donkey Kong only included two of the arcade version's four levels and had greatly reduced graphics, so bad that one of my friends thought that the fire barrels were actually magic genie lamps. But arcades thrived for more than just technical reasons. Arcades were a social gathering place, a secret clubhouse away from adults where kids met and hung out with their friends. There was no feeling quite like being so awesome at a game that a crowd would form around you and watch you play. If you did well enough to get a high score, you would be honored with your name and lights. And by your name and lights, of course, I mean your initials and pixels, but it was still pretty cool. And having your name displayed wasn't the only incentive for practicing and playing your hardest. At 25 cents per play, you tended to take game playing a lot more seriously. Especially at that age, quarters were valuable. Over the next few years, the majority of these arcades closed their doors. The two independent Yukon arcades I mentioned were the first to go, with many of the mall-based arcades closed down following suit. Some of the co-located arcades closed down, others scaled back. Le Mans, one of the few mall versions that remain open today, is a shell of its former shelf. And by the way, this is slightly outdated. Le Mans is gone now, too. Even the few that did survive have changed drastically, making a massive shift towards redemption games. The obvious question becomes, if arcades were such an awesome place, why did they go out of business? There are a multitude of factors and theories. One obvious one is that, on a technical level, video game consoles and home computers eventually caught up and surpassed their arcade counterparts. Early systems like the Atari and Mattel's Intellivision simply didn't have the power to match the graphics of arcade games. But before long, it was the other way around. By the time the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis hit the market, console video games looked almost indistinguishable from their big brothers. No longer did you have to beg your parents for a ride to the arcade to play Joust. Instead, you could play it on your Game Boy anywhere and anytime you wanted. Another reason arcades began losing popularity was due to a shift in gamers' tastes. Role-playing games and other adventure games delivered lengthy, detailed experiences on home computers that arcade games couldn't and were never designed to duplicate. Arcade games were designed to take your money and then kill you, figuratively speaking, not to let you play for hours or months on end. This disparity was eventually exponentially multiplied by the introduction of online gaming via the internet. Now, not only could you play these great new games at home, but you could play them with other people without ever leaving the couch. The final nail in the coffin was the cultural shift that began during that time and continues to this day. In the 1980s, dropping your kids off at the local arcade for a few hours or letting your kids hang out at the bowling alley all day unsupervised was not a big deal. These days, letting young kids hang out unsupervised even in a relatively public area such as an arcade is virtually unheard of. Slowly, stories of kids being abducted, kidnapped, and murdered began making the nightly news. One in particular that comes to mind was the kidnapping and beheading of Adam Walsh, whose father, John Walsh, subsequently started the TV show America's Most Wanted. I don't know that any single incident caused this change across society, but the change was palpable. As a little kid, I can remember my mother leaving me alone to play the arcade games located directly next to the exit door of our local supermarket while she shopped for groceries. The thought of letting my own son do that today terrifies me. What caused this? Maybe I've watched too many after-school specials or episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Without kids showing up with quarters, the industry caved in upon itself. In an attempt to bring in more income, arcades added more and more ticket-dispensing games. 
Redemption games were and are a great way for arcades to make money, with children slamming quarter after quarter into the machines in order to earn tickets that can be exchanged for various prominently displayed prizes. Anyone with even the most rudimentary grasp of money or mathematics can see that the prizes are overpriced junk. It could take $1,000 worth of tickets to purchase a $100 prize, which is, of course, the basic formula that allows many arcades to keep their doors open. I once had a local arcade owner tell me that 90% of his income came from redemption games. The reason arcades flourished in the first place is because they delivered an experience not easily reproduced at home. Once home gaming systems advanced to a point where they performed side-by-side with arcade games, arcades had to change. The most popular non-redemption games today are the ones you cannot easily or inexpensively reproduce at home. Big dance pad games, sit-down multiplayer racing games, and big-screen light gun shooting games. The reason there's not a Pac-Man machine on every corner these days is because kids can play it for free on their cell phones, if they even want to anymore, that is. Well, that was longer than I thought, but thanks for hanging in there, and that concludes this first episode of Cactus Flax. So on the next episode, we will start right in with the first arcade game I ever purchased. If you want to know what that is, join in on the fun, join us on the next episode. We'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to another episode of Cactus Flax. You can find more episodes of Cactus Flax over at podcast.robohara.com. If you'd like to contact me, send me an email at robohara at robohara.com. Find me on Twitter at Commodore or follow this page on facebook.com forward slash Cactus Flax. You can also leave a voicemail on the Rob O'Hara podcast hotline, which is area code 405-486-YDKF. Cactus Flax is a proud member of Throwback Network, your home for quality retro podcasts. To find this and other retro-themed podcasts, visit throwbacknetwork.net. Thanks again for listening. Get out of here, you punk.